Amen. You know, uh, Alfred Nobel was a Swedish engineer who invented dynamite. That was his claim to fame. Um, And in 1888, a newspaper incorrectly reported his death. It was, in reality, it was his brother who passed away. Uh, And so this newspaper, he was reading this newspaper and reading about his own life and how he would be remembered. And it said this, The merchant of death is dead. Dr. Alfred Nobel... So he's reading this, okay? Who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. So, hmm, that is my legacy. I found ways to kill as many people as possible, you know? Uh, And after realizing that that was going to be his legacy, he decided, you know what? I want to totally change how I live. I want to change how I invest money. I want to change how I spend my life. And so he decided to use it for a different purpose. And on November 27th, 1895, at the Swedish-Norwegian club in Paris, uh, Nobel signed his last will and testament and set aside the bulk of his estate to establish the Nobel Prizes, which we still celebrate today, for physics, chemistry, medicine, literature, economics, and peace. So these are to be awarded annually without distinction of nationality. And realize, again, this is late 1800s. He died of a stroke, and on December 10th, 1896 in Italy, uh, he died and left over $103 million to fund these awards. Again, 1800s, hundreds of millions of dollars. And so it's interesting. Death has an amazing way of putting things into proper perspective. You know, things that once seemed so important to us, uh, such as, you know, whether it was our hobbies, our jobs, making money, whatever, somehow they don't have the same kind of value when faced with the loss of a loved one. And uh, other near-death experiences seem to awaken people's souls and they begin living life in a more meaningful way. And today... Uh, We're going to look at another near-death experience through the life of Jonah. We continue our series on this interesting prophet, right? He is definitely not your typical prophet you think of uh, when you think of biblical men of God that was used to proclaim God's messages. You know, last week we looked at how Jonah ran away from God and his call, but though he ran, though he was running, he could not hide from the pursuit of of God and his mercies over his life. And the question we want to address today is, the same way that Jonah finally made a U-turn and returned back to God, how can we as well return to God in an appropriate way? So open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2, and let's continue on this journey and this interesting adventure of this misfit punk prophet called Jonah, or Average Joe which I like to call them. Follow along in your outlines as well, and let's explore how we can return to God the right way as well. And so the first thing that we see in Jonah's return to God, and what we need to do as we return to God as well, is this. Number one, cry out to God in desperation. So everybody repeat, cry out to God. Okay, so that's the first way that we return to God. Jonah's in major trouble in the sea, and so he cries out to God in his desperation while he is drowning. Right? Let's look at Jonah chapter 2, starting from verse 1. 
It says, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Verse 2, he said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. Okay, so he's calling out, he's crying out to the Lord. And he answered me, from the depths of the grave, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. And so in verse 2, when we see his prayer, and he says, from the depths of the grave, literally means from death. So he's saying he realized he almost died. He was about to die. He's saying, I called out to you in my death. He was near drowning, near death. And oftentimes, people think the moment, you know, when they read through the book of Jonah, they'll think that, oh, you know, the moment the sailors threw Jonah overboard, splashes into the ocean, then God just sent that big fish right away. Gobble, right? Just ate him, right? Sometimes they think it's right away he's in this thing. But that's not the case, as we will see in this prayer in chapter 2. So look at verse 3. So he's saying, verse 3, You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas. The currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. Now, I don't know, I don't know about you, but if you've ever been in, uh, swept in undercurrents in the ocean with uh, like medium to high tides and you know, waves, it's pretty scary. Um, I remember when I was uh, in Australia, I mean, Australia, Sydney has just some of the most beautiful beaches in the world. And so uh, we would have our baptisms at the beach, which was pretty cool. And so afterwards, you know, after we do our baptisms, you know, you know how people are. The guys want to baptize everybody, right? And so everybody goes in. And there was one time that, you know, some people brought their uh, surfboards and stuff. And I attempted it. And I, that's when I realized I don't really like ocean surfing that much. I like swimming, you know, but ocean swimming and stuff, it's a whole new ballgame. You know, so I was like, you know, I went out with some of my friends on this board, and then I couldn't stand up. He's like, Ugh. So I'm like just holding on to this thing, and the waves are getting a little bit higher and higher. And if you're not catching a wave, you're going deeper and deeper into the ocean. You know, so finally I was telling my friends, like, hey, can you pull me in? <laughs> and they're like laughing. Uh-huh. I was like, no, no, seriously, can you pull me in? <laughs> you know, I was, like, I, was, I was getting further and further and further, you know, and doing this wasn't doing anything, you know. Um, and so finally I had to jump off my board, and one of my friends took the board, and while I was trying to swim back, suddenly, you know, I got caught under a wave, and man, and I got caught under an undercurrent. It was like a huge wave, and then suddenly it is so scary because you get so disoriented you don't even know which way is up, you know, because all of a sudden, like, gravity is out of the picture, and it was a scary moment uh, when that was happening. And during that time, I think this is kind of a picture of what Jonah is going through. Suddenly, he's in this undercurrent. He has no idea what's going on, and then he is praying to the Lord. Verse 4, he said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again to your holy temple. So in the midst of almost dying, he is saying, God, I broke fellowship with you. But I want to return to your holy temple, meaning I want to return to the place of intimate fellowship and worship with you once again. And so he's kind of now realizing, oh my goodness, God may really answer my desire of me dying. And he's really realizing, okay, God. And he's like, you know, I, I messed up. God, I was in rebellion. You called me to your side and I was in rebellion. And so now he is getting his heart and his mind right with God. And he's saying, you know what, God, God, my place as a priest and a prophet is the place where I belong. He's saying, where the calling that you've called me to, that's where I belong. I don't belong in this ocean. I don't belong on the ship. I'm supposed to be where you originally called me to be. 
And again, death has an amazing way of putting things into proper perspective. So he now remembers the value and the privilege it is of being God's servant once again. And as he continues on with his submersion into the depths of the ocean, okay, so he's getting further and further. First of all, he's caught in the undercurrent in the middle of the ocean. Now he's sinking deeper and deeper, realizing this is it, I'm dead. And so in his heart, he's trying to get right with God again. He said, God, I messed up. I messed up on my calling. I'm so sorry. Verse 5. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Okay, so he's like going deeper and deeper. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Now, this is dangerous because he wasn't Korean. You know, because Koreans, they love seaweed. You know, like milk and ghee. They, like if it's seaweed, he'd probably just eat it. You know, eat his way free, you know. No, no, sir. But seaweed is... <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, okay, so now, this is kind of a serious part here. Okay, so he's like, he's almost going to die, even though I can't stop smiling right now. Um, so he's near the bottom of the sea. He's wrapped around this thing. And uh, verse 6, to the roots of the mountains I sank down. So now he's on the ocean floor. The earth beneath barred me in forever, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. Okay? So he's about to die. He's on this ocean floor and all this seaweed's all in his hair. And, and I don't know if, you've, if you guys have ever experienced the near drowning experience. I actually had a worse experience than the time when I was in Australia. Uh, it was gym class when I was in high school. And I was, like, me and a bunch of my friends, we were waiting for our gym instructor, and uh, it was swimming. And so for a gym, we went through all these different sports, and it happened to be swimming time. So we were all in the pool. We all knew how to swim except one of our friends. But he didn't want to wait in the shallow section, you know, because he wanted to look, he didn't want to look like, you know, he wanted to be cool. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, you know, just nobody's there, and, you know, just a couple of the girls on our team, I, I don't want to go there, you know, because so, all the guys were in the deep section. So, okay, yeah, you could chill. And so then our gym instructor was like, all right, you know, I still got to do some stuff. Do some laps, swim. And so we're like, cool. Right as I was about to go, my friend, like, jumps on top of me, you know? And he holds me down. You know, he starts to panic. And so he's, like, holding me underwater, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> you know, and I'm literally trying to get out, but I can't because he's panicking because I'm his only, like, lifeguard, right? I mean, so... And so finally, I, I honestly, I thought I was going to die. And so I had to start punching him. <laughs> Scraping his fingers and his prying open his fingers. And when I got open, I was, oh. I was like, dude, you almost killed me. He's like, oh, I thought I was going to drown. You know, I was like, dude, I was going to drown. You know what I mean? I thought you could swim. And I was trying to explain to him, swimming, just because you could swim does not mean you could be underwater for like 10 minutes. You know what I mean? And so, uh, but literally, there came a moment there was a moment when I was like, dude, if this guy does not let go, I'm going to die. I was like, what a sad way to die. You know, I was like, they're going to report, yeah, a friend ex accidentally held him under the water because he could not swim. You know, I was like, and so all these things are going through my mind, you know, while I'm trying to pry this guy off of me. But again, it's a fearful thing. And it's amazing because so many things really do go through your mind. My whole life didn't flash. I was just picturing how this was going to get announced. You know, I was like, this is how he died. I was like, this is not how I want to die, you know? Uh, but so, again, so he's also flashing back to his most recent mistake, right, of his time 
of rebellion before God. In verse 7, he says, my life, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. So in the midst of death and darkness, Jonah is returning back to God, how by in his heart of hearts, crying out to him. He's crying out in his desperation. And that's the beginning steps of us returning to God. When life is a disaster, when life stinks, when life is hard, we can either curse God or we can cry out to Him. The foolish will curse, the wise will cry out. As a newborn infant will cry out in desperation and independence, so will a child of God cry out to the only one who can save us from our sin and destruction. This is the proper beginning to returning to God. Cry out to God in our depravity, in our desperation. A great prayer to pray. There will be three simple prayers that we will learn from the life of Jonah in this chapter. And this is the first prayer. And that is, God, help me. That is a beautiful prayer in the ears of God. Everybody repeat, God, help me. That is a beautiful prayer because it is a prayer of humble dependence. Say, God, I'm not going to try to solve my problems on my own. God, I cannot have the wisdom or the divine foresight to understand all these things. So God, help me. Be it in small problems or big problems, that is a prayer that God's heart delights in. When we turn to him, God, help me. Turn to the Lord for he is our salvation. Amen? He is our salvation. He is our God who saves. He is our God who hears. He is our God who brings us out of our pit and restores us again. And He is honored when His people call out to Him. He is honored by hearts that say, God, I need your help. I'm not going to be arrogant or prideful to think that I could solve or run my life by myself. God, I need you. He is honored by that. And what's interesting is communists understand this principle of how giving responds with glory. And let me explain. You know, I had the uh, privilege of, actually one of my friends is uh, doing some mission work in North Korea, and I had the privilege when I was on sabbatical to visit his ministry. And um, while we were there, um, he was showing me some of the elementary schools that he went to. And um, if you guys have ever seen pictures of North Korea and stuff, there's like propaganda everywhere. Um, you know, in the local cities and villages, there's huge plaques signs that, you know, of their leader and saying long live or forever live this leader, whatever. He took me to this, like, kindergarten, this really young uh, school for children. And while we were going there, like, the huge walls. You know how, it, like, in most schools, in the big walls, they'll have, like, characters like Big Bird or, like, this teddy bear or whatever? Uh, what they have are um, small children bowing with these huge bubble, you know, signs that say, uh, we praise our leader, you know, Kim Jong-un, uh, for his provision. And all these praise things. And so obviously, I, I didn't understand what I was saying, so I asked my friend, you know, what does it say? They say, oh, they're praising him for their provision, for all their provision. I was like, dude, what's up with that? And he was telling me that um, it's, you know, again, propaganda. They're kind of, uh, you know, trying to train children at a young age to give all glory to the giver of all of their needs. I was like, aren't they in a famine? Aren't they lacking stuff? And he would tell me, this is what they do. So at the beginning of the uh, school year, and when kids start going to school and stuff, they'd all sit down and the guards would come and say, pray to God for candy. And so obviously out of obedience, they would pray to God and nothing. Right? And then they would say, pray to our leader 
looking for candy. And they would do that, and then the guards would throw out candy at their desk to teach them that he is the one who provides for them and also to give glory to the one who provides for them. You see, because communists understand this principle that those who give receive glory. The giver receives the glory. And for God, he receives glory when we cry out to him as our provider. When we trust him, knowing that he is the owner of it all, and God, if I'm not going to turn to my job, I'm not going to turn to my, you know, my stock funds, I'm not going to turn to my bank account for, to trust in. God, I trust in you. And he is honored by that. Amen? So we turn to him. We cry out to him when we are in need. God will answer. We call out to the great I am. What an interesting name, right? When God was revealing himself, he says, who should I say he sent me? Moses is saying, I am. I was like, uh-huh, you are, right? Um, but I think it's left, that second section I think is left vague intentionally. God is saying, I am all that you ever need. You fill in the blank. What do you need? What is the thing that your life needs? I am it. That is our God. Amen? So we cry out to him, and he will respond. The next phase of Jonah's return and ours is when we celebrate God's salvation. So everybody repeat, celebrate God's salvation. For when we call to our God, God will answer. When you call out to God in desperation, God will come to you. For he has always been pursuing you in his mercy. He has always been patiently waiting for you to call on him. And when his child calls, he comes running. Amen? That is our God. When we call out to him in desperation, he comes and he responds. Our God, Jesus has revealed, is a God who runs to his people when they return to him. Verse 2, again it says, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he what? He answered me. From the depths of the great I call, grave I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Verse 7, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Our prayers rise up like a sweet fragrance, like a sweet offering to our God and to his temple whenever we pray. Your prayers are not empty, your prayers are cherished and treasured by God. And in Revelation, Jesus also reveals that when we pray, when his saints pray, he collects the prayers of his saints and collects them in golden bowls. That is how cherished your prayers are in the sight of God. Amen? And when the time is right, those prayers will be answered. That is how God cherishes our prayers. Verse 6, To the roots of the mountains I sank, the earth beneath me barred me in forever, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. I was close to death, he is saying. I was in the pits of my sin and rebellion like mud. I was sinking deeper and deeper because of the consequences of my sin. Because of the consequences of my rebellion. I was sinking in death. But I called out to you. And you lifted me up out of that mud of sin. He is saying, no child of mine, no child of the king belongs in the slimy pit of sin 
that you are in. When you call, our God will come running for you. When you call out, he will lift you up, cleanse you, clothe you in righteousness, restore you again. Amen? That's the kind of God we serve, and he is awesome. Now let's look at verse 8. Let's read verse 8 together. Ready to begin? Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Now Jonah is remembering the joy and the honor it is to be a child of God and to be used by him. He's saying, living without God is foolish. He's saying, what was I thinking? When I'm apart from God, when I run from God, when I decide, God, I don't want to follow your path in my life, he's saying, what am I thinking? Because, he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Because when we are with God, we are surrounded with grace. No God... No grace. With God, there is much grace. So he's saying living in rebellion is foolish because you miss out on the grace that could be yours. And now what is the word here for grace? The word for grace here is uh, an incredible, beautiful Hebrew word called hesed. And what that is, it is a multifaceted diamond of God's character. And within that, it is one of radical kindness, abundant grace, generous giving, just goodness that follows you, mercy, 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 generous giving, grace. He's saying that is what follows the one who follows God. That kind of goodness, that kind of grace, that kind of overflow. And he's saying, what was I thinking? When I walk with God, that goodness of God is walking with me. What was I thinking? When I run from God, I'm running from that. Because a life with God is a life of grace. Amen? A life of gracious gifts. A life of radical kindness. A life where mercy and love follows me all the days of my life. But how foolish and blind we are when we think we can truly be happy apart from God. Because without God there is blindness, but with God there is light. Without God there is darkness, but with God there is the sunshine of our lives. Without God there is weeping, but life with God means celebration, rejoicing, and dancing. Amen? That is a life marked with God. With God, you have grace all the days of your life. Without it, there is condemnation. And that is why he says in verse 9, let's read verse 9 together. Ready to begin? But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. So he's filled with a song of thanksgiving because God was gracious in saving him by allowing that great fish to swallow him. And we need to realize when we really realize who we are, wretched sinners, rebellious, filthy sinners, when we realize where we've been, where we've really been, in the pit, in the mud, in the sewers of our sin, and when we realize what God has done by taking us out of that slimy sewer, washing us to be white as snow, and giving us a new life and a new purpose to live, the natural result is a heart of thanksgiving. Amen? When you really realize that. Because a test to see how much you understand the gospel for your own life is to see how thankful you are. If your life and your heart is marked with thanksgiving, say, God, thank you. I don't deserve any of this. When people are kind to you and speak kindly of you, God, thank you. I totally do not deserve what they just said of it, but thank you. When God gives you peaceful days, God, thank you. 
I don't deserve it, but thank you. A life that understands where we've been, who we really were, and where we are now is filled with thanksgiving. Because a thankful people understand that all of life is gift. All of life is grace. Amen? But if we are bitter, resentful, if we are not marked with thanksgiving, what that shows us is that we think we deserve it. How come it, did, how come it didn't work out the way I... How come I don't get this? How, and you get bitter, resentful because things didn't go your way? You're showing, hey, I deserve it. My life deserves better. And you forgot who you really are, where you've really been, and where God has taken you. May we be a congregation that is filled with the thankful people who understand that all of life is God's grace to us. Amen? I really pray that we would be that kind of congregation. All is grace. So the first beautiful prayer we learn that's simple from the first part of this chapter is God, what? Help me. And the second beautiful prayer that we learn in this portion is God, thank you. God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for hearing these prayers. So everybody repeat, God, thank you. That is the second beautiful prayer that we need to learn how to pray in our lives. And then he says, salvation comes from the Lord. God is always at work to save his people, even before we know it. And God has saved him in a very unexpected way. In chapter 2, we shall see the grace of God in two strange ways. The first way we see the grace of God is through a large fish that swallows Jonah. Strange, but that is the grace of God. God works in mysterious ways. But this is such a significant gift from God that even Jesus makes reference to it when talking about his death and resurrection through the sign of Jonah. Matthew chapter 16 from verse 1 says, Pharisees, Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to, to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. Let's read verse 4 together. Ready, begin? A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. Now, how is the mark or the sign of Jonah? Again, Jesus is talking about, you know, the burial, you know, for a few days, the same. Uh, this is the sign, just as Jonah was buried for a few days. But what's the significance of it? Why does that hold so much value, this chapter? Why is this so important that Jesus makes reference to this in reference to his death, resurrection, and the cross? What is this sign? Why is it so important? It is because of this. A place that ought to be a place of death becomes a place of deliverance and life. Okay. Let me repeat that. A place that should have been a place of death becomes a place of deliverance and life. A dead life is raised and used again for the glory of God. And so let me unpack this. For Jonah, for Jesus, and also for us. So for Jonah, it meant this. Drowning and getting swallowed by a big fish in the ocean and staying there for a few days, that is a place of certain death. But instead, God uses it to become a place of restoring his servants and a place of deliverance and life for Jonah. 
For Jesus, what does it mean? The cross and the grave that held him down. That is the most certain sign of death and finality. But instead, God uses it to become a place of new life for all who trust in him. Amen? And what does that mean for us? The parts of our lives that Satan seeks to steal, kill, and destroy through our sin and rebellion, God can take that life, redeem it, restore it by the blood of Jesus Christ, and make us new creatures again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. He's saying, you were dead, but through Christ you are now alive. You were a slave to sin, but through Christ you are now free to live life to the full. You are a new creation in Christ, and even death cannot separate you from the love of God anymore. Praise God. Amen. And Paul declares in Romans 8, For I'm convinced, as I reflect upon the condemnation that was once ours and now the new life and freedom that we have in Christ, he's saying, Now I am convinced that neither death, not even death or life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of Christ that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? That is who we are because of Christ. We are now recipients of that love. Nothing can separate from that love. And so we cry out to God, He answers. Then we celebrate His salvation. So we say, God, help me, and He will help. And then we say, God, thank you. And the next natural step is number three. We consecrate our lives to God. So everyone say, consecrate your life to God. Verse 9. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. What is the natural and proper response to our great God who saved us and hears us when we cry to Him? What is the natural response of the humble and grateful sinner who realizes I deserve nothing but hatred from people and abuse from people and death and suffering for all eternity. What is the natural response of the person who has received new life and grace and righteousness? The natural response is surrender. It is a life that says, God, I'm yours. So you say, God, help me. And God helps me. And I say, God, thank you. God, I'm yours. Amen? These are the three beautiful prayers that we see in Jonah in this chapter. God, help me. God, thank you. God, I'm yours. Can we say that? God, I'm yours. If you pray these three simple prayers, I guarantee God's heart's going to be so delighted in you. So Jonah, in light of this grace, is saying, God, now I vow. He makes this vow. He says, the vows I make, I will fulfill. God, I vow, I will do what you ask of me. I will get back on mission with you. And we need to also realize that the reason God has saved you, the reason God has delivered you, the reason why God has ransomed you, the reason why you are alive still today is so that you might testify to the goodness of God to those who need you, who need Christ. Amen? 
And that's why we're having this evangelistic campaign throughout the Easter holiday that weekend because we realize that there are people in our lives. Why are we alive? Why did God bring these people into our into our sphere of influence, into our sphere of contact as neighbors, as co-workers, as family members. They don't know God, but we know God. Why is it? Why? Because He wants to use you as a messenger of grace. He wants you to pray. He wants us to be in prayer, to fast for their salvation, for us to provide an opportunity for them to hear the gospel, to experience the love of God through our service to them. That's why we're still here so that you might be a messenger of his grace. Amen? That is why we are here. And the moment Jonah surrenders to the will of God, what happens? Verse 10. This is actually an interesting one. This is the second interesting picture of God's grace. Let's read verse 10 together. Ready, begin? And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So first picture, unique picture of grace in this chapter is a big fish swallowing Jonah. Second picture of grace is the vomit. Really. Peculiar picture, but it is. God is saying, all right, you're going to get back on mission. I'll use you. Here you go. And this is actually a cool thing. Verse 10, you know how it says in the beginning of the NIV, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited? Literally, it is saying God spoke to the fish. The fish obeyed. Okay, it vomited. And it is in stark contrast, irony, to the prophet. When God spoke to the prophet, he rebelled. When God spoke to the fish, he obeyed. That's the irony this writer is trying to bring in. So in essence, be like the fish. He has given new life. He has given another chance to be God's tool in a very real sense He is reborn by God's grace. For all must be reborn by God's grace. Amen? Jonah says, I vow to you, God, I will do what you ask. I am yours now. Now God gives Jonah a fresh start to get back on mission. But this pattern that we just outlined, these three simple prayers, God, help me. God, thank you. God, I'm yours. That's actually a biblical pattern, not just in Jonah. One of my favorite verses is in Psalm 50, verse 15. Let's read that together. Ready to begin? And call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you and you will honor me. This is a beautiful pattern. This is actually a command. What is he saying? Call upon me in the day of trouble. God is saying, when you're in trouble, call upon me. Call to me. Trust in me. Look to me to be your salvation. Look to me to be your deliverer. Look to me to be your healer. Look to me to be your everything. Look to me. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. And so we see that first dynamic. God, help me. God, thank you. Because God's saying, I will deliver you. When my children call out to me, I'm going to come running. I will deliver my children. And so that's why we say thank you. Because God will. We call, God will respond. So we say, thank you. But usually we stop there, right? God, help. He helps. Thanks. Until we're in trouble again. God, help. Thanks. Right? But that's not the biblical way that it needs to finish. What is the third part of it? Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. Amen. 
God, help me. God, thank you. God, I'm yours. Use me for your glory, for your honor. Amen? Do not wait until your deathbed to redeem your life for the purposes of God. Get right with him today and let him use you greatly for his glory for all the days of your life. Amen? Let's pray.